Actually, y'all can stand for the reading of the sermon text. Oh, <laughs> I'm not the regular for visitors. <laughs> and this, this is actually uh, an, a different uh, format or a different order than we normally um, go through since it is Reformation Month. Uh, we are having the, motion, the Reformation emphasis, and we would normally have a longer New Testament reading. Um, so if you would turn to John chapter 14, we're in verse 15. Uh, This is just a single verse that will be the sermon text for this morning. John 14, chapter 15. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now you can be seated. (laughs) That is almost anticlimactic, but it is the word of God. So we we honor it. We take it seriously. Seriously. So it's customary at my house on Sunday afternoons um, to watch a little TV. Hope and I will, after lunch, we'll go down and we'll watch TV. And by watch, I mean she watches and I sleep. Um, One of the the TV shows that we'll watch is that she watches while I sleep is Gilligan's Island. And I just made the comment this morning um, that it is definitely going to be a, a day that we need to watch Gilligan's Island. And she just came back just like that. And she said, as long as you don't preach too long. <laughs> it, was, it was hilarious. It, it won't start until about 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So uh, I'm hoping that I won't preach too long. Um, I'm really especially thankful for this body, seeing Justin up here, ties out this morning, um, seeing Justin up here, and then this morning, um, Kevin, I normally teach Sunday school, Kevin Smith taught for me, and it just, those two things just triggered in my mind um, last, the last month that I taught, I guess it was September or August, um, Ryan and I take, take turns uh, teaching. And that month, I had some health things going on, and um, I had to ask a couple of guys on at short, very short notice, hey, can you teach for me? Uh, but I'm just so grateful for uh, people, men, who are able to step into uh, things that are normally other people's responsibilities. Like Ty is normally up here leading and Justin just stepped in and was able to do that. I normally teach and uh, Amos and Ray and Kevin have just graciously stepped in and, and taught. And it's, it is um, such a blessing. Um, so uh, let's, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll get into this text. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We're thankful for your blessings. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for this body. As we come to it, as we come to your word, as we seek to say what you have said to us, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would teach us. I pray that you would help me to have uh, clarity of thought. And um, I pray that I would not 
lead these precious people astray from what you have said. I pray that uh, you would give us all ears to hear and hearts to treasure what you have said. Um, Father, just bless this time. Be honored, be glorified in the preaching of your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus said, I'll restate the text since it is so short. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And just by way of summary and preview, um, we obey because our hearts have been transformed by grace. That is why we obey. And we see obedience as beautiful. That is, that is the one thing, if I could tell you, latch hold of one thing that I'm going to say today. That is it. We obey because we have been transformed and obedience is beautiful. So an outline of what we're going to look at this morning, we're going to look at two assumptions that Jesus made and then the connection between those two assumptions. The first assumption is you should obey the commandments of God. The second assumption is that we should love Christ. And then we will look at the connection between those two statements. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And we won't get too specific on specific commands to obey. Really, I want us to look at and glean from this why we should obey God's commandments. So assumption one, we should love Jesus. He said, if you love me. He's not arguing that we should love him. He's assuming that we will. All true disciples love Jesus. What does this mean to love Jesus? We believe in the Trinity so that we can say loving Jesus and loving God are the same thing. And let's look at one verse that'll help us to come up with a working definition of what it means to love God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The purpose of this verse is to exhort us to love God with all that we are. It gives us some hints at the nature of love, particularly love toward God. This verse seems to say that there are different aspects of ourselves with which to love God. It says to love him with your heart. And we could maybe think of that as our emotional being. It also says your soul, that is your innermost, deepest inner part of you, maybe your thoughts. And it says to love the Lord your God with all of your might. That is your strength. That is your will to exert so there's at least three aspects that this is encouraging us to, to engage to love God. There's an intellectual component, there's an emotional component, and there is a willful component. So from this verse, we can develop a working definition of love for God as something like this. We should positively and fully engage our emotional, intellectual, and willful capacities with and toward God. 
I'll say it again. We should positively and fully engage our emotional, intellectual, and willful capacities with and toward God. These three aspects are present not only in our love for God, but also in our human relationships. In husband, wife, child, parent, and friendship relationships, these three aspects are present. When love flourishes in human relationships, all three of these are strong. We have a mutual knowledge of one another. Each one is striving to know the other one. That's the intellectual component. Each one is, has tender affections for the other. And each one is committed to one another. In your human relationships that are flourishing, this is true. In our human relationships, our love is flawed because we are flawed those who are loving, and the other person is flawed, the one who we are seeking to love. We can hinder our own affection and our own knowledge of the other, and they, when we seek to love them, they can hinder our affection and knowledge of them. In our love for God, he puts no hindrance for us to love him. Because he is perfect. If there is a defect in our love towards God, it is from us. If we fail to love him with all of our affections, it is not him who is hindering us from loving him with all of our affections. If we are failing to love him with all of our knowledge, with setting our mind on him, it is us who is failing to love him with all of our mind. If we fail to be committed to God with all of our might, it is us who is failing to be committed to him with all of our might. He puts no obstruction in our ability to love him. John Owen wrote in the book, Communion with God, God must be revealed to us as lovely and desirable, as a fit and suitable object of rest to the soul before we can ever love God. The saints in this sense do not love God for nothing. They love him for his loveliness and because he is so desirable. The psalmist says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Love for God engages all that we are. When we love God, our knowledge, our affection, and our will are fully engaged. Anything less than this is not the kind of love that Jesus was talking about. So where does this kind of love come from? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were alienated from God. We were at enmity against him. Where does love come from? It is by faith, and I love it that this passage, this sermon came on sola fide day. We celebrate that we are saved by faith, but that that faith that saved us also sanctifies us, and that faith that saved and sanctifies us also, it gives birth to our love for God. 
by faith, our hearts welcome God. In John 1.12, it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. By faith, we hunger after him. John 6.35, it says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. By faith, we see him and not with human eyes. Acts 26.18 says, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. By faith, we hear his voice. Galatians 3.2 says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? These are new senses and new desires that are planted in us by faith. Jonathan Edwards wrote in The Religious Affections, from hence it follows that in those gracious exercises and affections which are wrought in the saints through the saving influences of the Spirit of God, there is a new inward perception or sensation of their minds. There is a new inward perception and sensation of their minds entirely different in its nature and kind from anything that ever their minds were the subjects of before they were sanctified. Jonathan Edwards is saying there is a transformation. We have new senses and new perceptions to see God with that is not physical. It is different from anything that we experienced before we were brought to faith. Faith causes us to see God through spiritual eyes and to perceive him as beautiful and glorious. Paul prays for the Ephesian church in Ephesians three seventeen through 19 so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Faith gives life to love, and it strengthens it. In Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, that prayer that we just read was primarily talking about Christ's love for us. However, our love is a result of his love for us. 1 John four nineteen says, we love because he first loved us. If by faith we spiritually perceive his love for us, our heart's response will be love for him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When we look at Jesus by faith, it does not just inform our intellect. It transforms us at the deepest levels of our being. Our affections are changed. Our desire to know him is intensified and even birthed. Our wills are changed. Our love for Jesus is strengthened. By faith, we are grounded in the love of God. We are filled with all the fullness of God. 
we have spiritual sight to see Jesus so that we are made like him. Faith brings us to be fully engaged to love God with all that we are. And again, if there is any defect in that love, if it weakens and wanes, which is a whole other topic, it is us. It is us. Fellowship and communion are at the heart of love for God. If our whole being is pursuing God in love, we will have a closeness with Jesus. We will have fellowship and communion with him. When we have closeness with him, we desire that fellowship to be closer still. We want to know him better. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives This is not a natural fellowship that we can conjure up by ourselves. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes and our hearts to truth. The truth grips us and transforms us and is beautiful to us. Has this happened to you? Have your eyes been open to see the beauty of Jesus? Or do you not care? When you think of Jesus, do you think of just a man, just a guy, just a teacher? Or in the, the eyes of your heart, is he beautiful? Is he your greatest treasure? Have you submitted your will to Jesus? If not, beg him to open your eyes Today, beg him to take out your cold heart of stone and replace it with a soft heart of flesh. Seeing him and loving him and living for him is what you were created for. Whatever you are doing, if you are not pursuing him, it's trivial. It is trivial. You were made to worship him. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Jesus died for all who would come to him. Do not continue in your rebellion against him. Jonathan Edwards also wrote in the the religious affections, the spirit of God so dwells in the hearts of the saints that he there as a seed or spring of life exerts and communicates himself in this his sweet and divine nature. He makes the soul a partaker of God's beauty and Christ's joy so that the saint has truly fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, in thus having the communion or participation of the Holy Ghost. The grace which is in the hearts of the saints is of the same nature with the divine holiness, though infinitely less in degree. That is the normal life of the regular Christian. It's a life of closeness with God. He is high and exalted, but he is also near. We make it our aim in life to draw near to him and to know him and to please him. Do you have a sense of closeness with God? If you don't, there may be a reason for that. Sometimes our emotions betray us and they do not let us feel 
the closeness that is actually there. But also, sin can hinder your closeness with God. Draw near to him. Put yourself in a position to know him. Look for what is good and pleasing to him and set yourself to do it. Seek fellowship with him. When faith is working in us, we are fully engaged to know and to love God. We will draw near to him. When there is a warmth of closeness and fellowship with him, our hearts will seek how to please him. That was assumption one, that we should love God. The second assumption is that we should obey the commandments. Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. He's not arguing that we should. He's not giving us reasons that we should. He is stating that if we are people who love him, we will also keep his commandments. Which ones? Which commandments? Jesus said that we will keep his commandments. I believe that he's primarily talking about the moral law of God contained in the Ten Commandments. And we'll come at this from two different approaches. We'll look at first the context of what Jesus is saying. Secondly, we'll look outside in the book of Jeremiah. So first, the context of what Jesus was saying, John chapter 14, 15, the sermon text, sits in a larger segment of narrative that runs from chapter 13, verse 31, towards the end of chapter 14, chapter 14, verse 31. Jesus said in that section of narrative that we should love one another. John 13, 34 says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That is human to human love. You love one another. You love your neighbor. You love all of these other image bearers of God. And he also said multiple times in this passage, he made reference and assumptions that we should love him, that we should love the Father. And that's in John chapter 14, 15, 14, 21, 14, 23, and 14, 28. Jesus directs us in two directions with our love in this passage. First, he directs us to love one another, love your neighbor, love your neighbor. Second, he directs us to love God. Does this sound familiar? Love your neighbor and love God. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, it says, and he said to them, to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. What Jesus is saying in John chapter 13 and 14, love God, love your neighbor, is the same thing that he said in Matthew chapter 22. Love God, love your neighbor. These are the two great commandments. And that is a reflection of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments can be divided into two sections, sometimes called tables. The first table is the first four commandments. These tell us how we should uh, behave toward God. 
This is how we love God. The first four commandments are, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any idols. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The first table of the law tells us how we are to behave towards God. The second table tells us how we are to behave towards man. The first table is how we love God. The second table is how we love our neighbor, how we love one another. We're to honor our father and mother. We are to not murder. We are to not commit adultery. We are to not steal. We are to not bear false witness. We are to not covet. In the Ten Commandments, we clearly have love for God and love for neighbor. So Jesus' statements, love God, love your neighbor, love God, love your neighbor, the Jews of that time would be hearing this and they would be thinking, first table of the law, second table of the law. They would be thinking, this is what God has told us from the beginning. Love God, love your neighbor. I believe that Jesus used the language of love God and loving others to direct our thinking towards the the Ten Commandments. So contextually, what Jesus is saying just right here in John 13 and 14, it seems like he is saying, the law that I'm telling you about, the commandments that I'm telling you about are the Ten Commandments. Obey those. A second perspective, a second approach that we can take to this is looking at Jeremiah 31. This is a prediction of the new covenant, which we are in the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 33 says, Behold, and this is, I'm going to um, shorten this. I'm not reading all of 31 through 33. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is a prediction in Jeremiah's day of what the new covenant would look like. He does not say that in the new covenant there will be no commandments. There will be no obligations. There will be no rules to follow. He says, no, there will be laws. There will be rules. There will be commandments. And I will write them on your heart. If you are a member of the new covenant, if Jesus died for you, his law, he said he would write it on your heart. What law is that? When we read this, I believe that he wants us to connect back to Exodus 31, 18, when Yahweh delivered the Ten Commandments to Moses on tablets of stone. It says that he wrote the law into the stone with his finger. That imagery is there in Jeremiah 31, pulling from Exodus 31. The same law that Yahweh wrote on tablets of stone is the same law that he writes on our hearts. So not only does Jeremiah 31 show us that the moral law is still binding on us, but it gives us an indication of how we should think of that law. It is on our hearts. It is inside of us. It is dear to us. So the commandments that Jesus says to obey in John 14 are the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. We should obey the Ten Commandments. What's the nature 
of these commandments? Are they just an arbitrary set of rules that God came up with in order to give us something that we have to obey? Is that what they are? Are they something harsh and oppressive that God has chosen to oppress his people with? I think that the law, the commandments, people have a very negative view of them. Romans 7.12 says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The commandments of God are neither arbitrary nor oppressive. They are holy and righteous and good. God himself is holy and righteous and good. He gave commandments that are in line with his character. By obeying them, we participate in and we display in a small, limited way the nature and character of God himself. The commandments are a treasure because they show us what God is like. When we consider his commandments, let us see that God was being a good father to us. He was communicating about himself and what he requires. He was setting boundaries for us to protect us. We should not think of his commandments as heavy and oppressive. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If Jesus is telling us we should obey him, we should obey the commandments, and he points us back to Exodus 20 in his imagery, but then he also says, come to me. If you are heavy laden and burdened down by the keeping of the laws that the Pharisees tell you, come to me. Come to me. Yes, you obey. You obey the law. You obey God's word. You obey the Ten Commandments. But it is not a heaviness. It is not oppressive. You come to me and you obey and you will find Rest for your souls. You may be uncomfortable with me telling you that the law of God is still binding on new covenant believers. This may trouble you. This may contradict what you have been taught and how you interpret scripture. You may be thinking, I thought we were under grace and not under the law. That's good. If, if you're bothered, good, I'm glad. I'm glad you're thinking and you're thinking biblically. If you're objecting and you're thinking, but the Bible says that we're no longer under the law, we're under grace, good, good. I'm glad your mind went there. And if it didn't go there, we'll just answer the objection anyway. We'll look at one specific verse, the verse that this came from. 
and it'll answer it for us. Romans 6, 14 through 15, Paul says, for sin will have no dominion over you. Here it is. Since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. The point of these two verses is that we should not sin. (laughs) The point of these verses is not there is no such thing as sin because there is no law that's binding on us. The point is you do not sin. You should not sin because you are under grace. You are not under the law. What is the standard for what sin is? If Paul is saying sin will have no dominion over you, what does that even mean? What does sin mean? What does sin mean apart from violation of the law? In 1 John, it says that sin is lawlessness. The Ten Commandments, the moral law, is a summary of what God requires of us regarding himself and regarding our neighbors. We look to the Ten Commandments to define what sin is. Paul is saying that our sin should be less and our obedience to the law should be greater because we are not under law, but we are under grace. He's saying that grace, being under grace, should increase your obedience. It should not diminish your obedience. It should not make you ambivalent about being obedient. Your, the, the, the fact that we are under grace should boost our obedience to the law, to God, to what he has said. He's not saying that since we are not under the law, that we don't have to obey the law. That's not the argument that he's making. Under the law, there was no power to be free from the work of sin inside of us. I am so thankful that we are not under the law. I am so thankful that that doesn't govern us now. Do you know what you would face if you were under the law and you were either obedient or disobedient? There were promises of physical blessing for being obedient, and there were promises of curses for being disobedient. That is how God acted toward his people in the old covenant. And that was great and glorious, and it gave us a picture of what Christ would do on the cross. It gave us a picture of the blessing that is ours in Christ, and it gave us the picture of the curse that awaits us if we remain unrepentant. But where is freedom? Where is the freedom inside from sin? Do you want to be under law? Do you want there to be no freedom from the dominion of sin? Yes, you could have blessing and you could have curse, but there is no freedom. That's what being under the law means. You are not free. The dominion of sin is not lifted. You sin and you get cursed. That's what it means. Now, being under grace, it means, yes, Jesus did take my punishment for sin, but there's more. Under grace, grace reigns in our lives and in our hearts. God is pouring his grace on us to transform us and make us more like Jesus and to enable us to obey 
his commandments. That's what being under grace means. Being under grace is he is so pouring his grace onto you and into you and giving you the Holy Spirit to help you to obey his commandments. He's freed you from the dominion of sin. You are free to obey. He writes his law on our hearts so that we will obey him. Being able to live free from the dominion of sin and to actively and joyfully obey God's commandments is living under grace. That is freedom. If you think freedom is doing what you want, making a wreck of your life by violating God's law, that is not freedom. That is not good news. Part of the gospel is not just he will save you from hell. Part of the gospel is once you are saved, he transforms you. Why? For what? What does he transform you for? What does he transform you to? He transforms you to look like Jesus. The 1689 London Baptist Confession, which is the confession of this church, confirms this. And not that we look to the confession and say, the confession says it, therefore we believe it. No. The confession says it, and we believe that that's an accurate representation of Scripture. It says, the moral law does forever bind all, as well justified persons as others, to the obedience thereof. And that not only in regard of the matter contained in it, but also in respect to the authority of of God, the creator who gave it. Neither does Christ in the gospel any way dissolve, but much strengthen this obligation. So there are two improper ways to think about obedience. And I think that either one of these, if you have a bad taste in your mouth, to obedience, to doing what God has said. Probably one of these two improper thoughts about obedience is why you have a bad taste in your mouth. True obedience, if we see truly obedient people who are obeying God from the heart, we would see that as beautiful and you would have no bad taste in your mouth for people who obey. The two improper ways of going about obedience is antinomianism, I'll define it in a second, and legalism, and I'll define that in a second. Antinomianism, anti means against, nomos means law. That is a person who believes that the law is not binding on them. Antinomian is against the law. We've already seen that Jesus expects us to obey the moral law of God. Antinomianism maybe circulating in some circles, um, but full-on antinomianism is not prevalent anywhere that I'm aware of in evangelicalism. However, creeping antinomianism, I think I coined that. So if y'all start hearing people using that, I think I said it first. Um, Creeping antinomianism is dominant in the world and it has infiltrated evangelicalism. What I mean by creeping antinomianism is a teaching that says that we are only obligated to obey the 
law of love. What does that mean, law of love? God's law is the law of love. Jesus said that the second table of the law could be summarized in the statement, love your neighbor as yourself. God's law is the law of love. When people try to discount part of God's word and come up with something that sounds moral or spiritual, what they're really saying is that they're dissatisfied with God for requiring certain things of them. They think that they are better suited to be more, a moral authority than God is himself. The, the essence of the law of love creeping antinomianism is to celebrate everything about someone, even if it violates God's word. There, there is a caveat to that. There is something that you don't celebrate and you don't accept. And that something is if you're trying to live biblically. If you're trying to live biblically, the law of love doesn't apply towards loving that person. You can ridicule that person. You can mock that person. And you don't, you don't have to exhibit any kind of love. But if it's anybody else who is living any way that they want to apart from God, you accept that. And we do need to make a distinction. Consider people who are different from us, how do you interact with them? Do you love them? Do you treat them as an image bearer of the God of the universe? Because they are. When you encounter people who are different from you, you should love them. I'm not saying don't love them. You should love them. They should come away from you feeling loved. However, if the topic of whatever lifestyle they're living comes up, you can say, the Bible speaks to that. Let me, let me tell you what it says. And you can do it in a kind and loving way. That's being biblical. Being a creeping antinomian is, oh, that's fine. That's fine. Can, can we say that? Can we say that lifestyles that are contradictory to the word of God are fine? No, we can't say that. But we can't say, I love you. I will serve you. I will minister to you. I will help you. And I will point you to Jesus. That's what we can say. Neither full nor creeping antinomianism is acceptable for a Christian. The second improper view of obedience is legalism. Legalism says that we should and we must obey the law. Okay, so far so good, right? But it takes at least four approaches that we can't follow. So there probably are more, but I only came up with four. The first is to think that our obedience can earn heaven for us. That is right out. Galatians 3.11 says, Now it is evident that no one is justified by, by, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Keeping the law does not save. It never has. There is only one way that salvation has ever come, and that is through faith. The second approach 
is to introduce man-made rules and regulations that go beyond what was required by the law. If you come up with good ideas, maybe even moral ideas, maybe even this is something that we should probably be doing right now in our time, if it's not a reflection of God's word, if God hasn't said, do not do such and such, you cannot put on another believer that requirement. That is often what legalists do. We don't have the right to require obedience for new commands that God has not commanded. And we don't have the right to add requirements on how people carry out God's commands when God himself didn't require a a requirement on it. We can't. The third aspect of legalism is heartless obedience. It may be better to obey heartlessly than to disobey, but it is not good. Joyless obedience is not good. It may save you from wrecking your life, but we can't say this is good. It's just less bad. The fourth aspect of legalism is self-righteousness. Anytime you do a good work or obey God's law and you feel that you are better than those who don't, that's not a good sign. That is not a good sign. We should delight in our obedience, but it should not make us feel superior to those who aren't obedient. All of these aspects of legalism shows a failure to obey God. They are not alternative ways of obeying God. They are failures to obey God. So, this is the third and final point. What is the connection between love and obedience? Let's first look at what it's not. We should not think that if we love God, we should just buckle down and make ourselves obey. When I consider that, I think we might think there's this really distasteful thing that God wants me to do, to do and it's obedience to the law. And I really don't want to do that. But because I say I love Jesus, I'm going to power through and I'm going to do it. This is getting into the realm of what John Piper calls the debtor's ethic. Here are two quotes from uh, John Piper in Future Grace. The debtor's ethic says, because you have done something good for me, I feel indebted to do something good for you. The impulse is not what gratitude was designed to produce. God meant gratitude to be a spontaneous expression of pleasure in the gift and the goodwill of another. He did not mean it to be an impulse To return favors. If gratitude is twisted into a sense of debt, it gives birth to the debtor's ethic. And the effect is to nullify grace. A second quote, also from Future Grace, says, In the debtor's ethic, the Christian life is pictured as an effort to pay back the debt we owe to God. 
usually the concession is made that we can never fully pay it off, but gratitude demands that we work at it. Good deeds and religious acts are the installment payments we make on the unending debt we owe God. The debtor's ethic often lies, perhaps unintentionally, beneath the words, we obey Christ out of gratitude. We should not commit to obey God because we feel indebted to do so. The sense of being indebted to God can even infect our motivation to love him. Do you have a sense that you love God or should love God just because you have a sense that he loved you and you should love him in return? Is, is, is that how we're supposed to think of this? If that is you, I want to free you from that. There is so much more, something so much better than staying there, trying to pay back God, feeling obligated, feeling duty. And yes, there is duty. There are requirements. But just doing them just because it's duty and just because it's required, there is more. So how should we connect them? Transformed people love and obey. We who are transformed and see God as lovely will see his law as lovely and will desire to obey. Samuel Bolton, he was a Puritan writer, wrote in The True Bonds of Christian Freedom this, Thus it is that we do not obey merely because obedience is commanded, the mere command is for such as have no vital, vital principle in them. But we obey from a principle which God has implanted in us suitable to the commands of God. So he's saying we don't obey just because we have a command. We obey because God put something in us to enable us to obey, to want to obey. And he continues, we grant that the command is the rule. Commands are good. We grant that the command is the rule apart from our obedience. But grace is the principle within. The heart and the command answer to one another as face answers face in water or in a glass or a mirror. So it is with the heart and the command. The command is transcribed in the heart. This is the reason why there is so much delight in the godly man's obedience. For it is natural to obey so far as the heart is renewed, as it is natural for the eye to see and the ear to hear. So it is natural for the renewed heart to yield obedience to the command. And with this obedience comes delight. And he quotes from one of the Psalms, I delight to do thy will, O God. The connection between loving God and obedience to God is this. Those who love God love him because something has been transformed inside of them. When we see with our spiritual eyes, we see beauty. Our heart is set on him in love. When we look at the law with spiritual eyes, we also see beauty. 
we delight to do what it says. If you're a person who loves God, who has looked on him and who has seen beauty, then you will obey his commandments because in them you see a reflection of God. And if you look at God and you see beauty, then obeying his commands is just natural. And yes, we do have to fight sin and kill sin. And there is a thing inside of us that we are still putting to death that wants to keep us from obeying. Remember that the commandments are holy, they are righteous, and they are good. 1 John 5, 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So in conclusion, we love God because our hearts have been transformed. When we see the law, we see a reflection of the moral character of the God we love. And just as we see beauty when our eyes of faith look at who God is, we see beauty when we look at God's perfect law. Obeying a law that we see as beautiful is not burdensome. And let's just go through the Ten Commandments again. Which of these is burdensome to you? Which of these, if you are hesitant to consider that the law of God is still binding on us, which of these is burdensome? Come talk to me after. Is it burdensome to have no other gods? Is it burdensome to make no graven images? Is it burdensome to not take the name of the Lord in vain? Is it burdensome not to, not to honor the Lord's day? Is it burdensome to not honor your parents? Is it burdensome to not murder? Is it burdensome to not commit adultery? Is it burdensome to not steal? Is it a burden to you to not bear false witness against your neighbor? Is it a burden for you to be satisfied with what God has blessed you with and not covet your neighbor's goods? Which of these is burdensome? Which of these is heavy? Which one of these is oppressive? We should be able to look at each of these commandments and see the beauty in it. And we should be able to say that we obey because we see the beauty in it and not because we must obey, because it is our duty to do so. We acknowledge that his commandments are good. They are not burdensome. Let's pray. Father, you are gracious to us. You are loving. You opened our eyes and you caused us to see And in seeing you, we saw beauty. And you wrote your law in our heart. And in that law, we see goodness and righteousness and holiness. And we see a reflection of you. And you graciously gave that to us. 
Father, I pray that we would take your word seriously, that we would strive to obey and not obey because we must, though we must. But I pray that we would obey because we see it as glorious. We see living the life that you have given us as glorious. Father, work in our hearts. Holy Spirit, teach us. Drive these truths deep, deep into our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.